This morning, we are going to continue our study in the section of the Hebrew Bible that's known as the post-exilic section. It is a section that covers the history that is known as the post-exile era in the history of God's people, Israel. Uh, we are studying six books in this section. These six books make up the whole section. So we are learning together the, the history and the prophecy of the, of the post-exile. I, I am treating these all together as opposed to just going through one book, one book at a time. I'm treating them together as a unit, for they are telling us the story of the faithfulness of God. I've titled this sermon series, Faithful to Fulfill, A Study of God as Revealed in the Post-Exilic Scripture. There's a lot going on in this era of the history of God's people Israel. It is, it is a, a, a moment that they had been waiting for, a, a moment that the prophets said would come when they were kicked out of their land, when they were crushed, when their temple was toppled, when they were at their, the lowest of the low in exile, God would come and supernaturally, through His providential working, through the rumblings of the nations, political powers and whatnot, He, he would move and He would allow the people to move back into the land of promise. He is bringing the people back to the land of promise because that was his promise to the patriarch Abram, that he would have a progeny. His progeny would become a people, a nation. They would be in that place, the land of promise. And through the land of promise, prosperity and blessing would come to the nations of the world. The world is fallen. The world is in disarray, decay, dysfunction, death. But through this promise, he would come and bring life. He would restore creation. He would renew all things, and he would be doing it through this people. So in this era of exile, you say, where's the promise? What are you doing, God? God was using it all to chasten his people, to prepare the way for the one who he would send through the seed of Abram, through the seed of the great king David, who would come and bring ultimate, ultimate salvation, not only for the people of Israel, but for the nations of the world. And the one to whom has come, we call him Jesus, and he is coming again. And this era of history is teaching us about the faithfulness of God as we find ourselves today in a kind of exile where we're waiting and we're crying out, Oh Lord, where are you? Oh Lord, what are you doing? Oh Lord, when will you come? As we see his faithfulness to come to the people of Israel in the post-exile, that the exile had become post, it was over. So too, we wait for this age to be post and over. The nations are in disarray. There is war. There is rumor of war. There, there's, there's all this stuff going on when you turn on the news. And then there's all this stuff going on when you turn into your own heart. And you look at your own relationships. And you look at your own city. And, and you see suffering. And you see hurting. I shared with you this morning of our brother... Clarence in the hospital, and your, your heart breaks when you see a brother in the hospital in ICU on a breathing machine, and you say, Lord, this is heavy, and then you, t you turn on the tube thinking you're going to find, you know, maybe just something to laugh at, and you just find more things to cry about. Well, Israel, no doubt, had people among them who were sick, no doubt, had relationships that were hurting. This is real life, real people in real life. It's real history. As they are going back to the land of promise, you have three historic waves 
of the people returning to the land. I'll put them in front of you here. You see the first wave with Zerubbabel, the second wave with the historic figure Ezra. This figure Ezra has a book in the Bible named after him that he penned. We read Ezra, we studied Ezra, we took a break in Ezra because Ezra started bringing up the prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and so we have been studying the prophets. We are, we've got this history and we've paused for prophecy. We wrapped the book of Haggai and now we're in Zechariah, and so we're in this era of the first wave. You see these gaps in between the waves, you see these little time markers, and what's significant about the time markers is the first wave is coming. Here you see 535 B.C. You see Haggai is offering a prophecy some 15 years removed from this. Zechariah is offering a prophecy some 15 years removed from this. What had happened when the people came back to the land, when God brought them back, they settled into the land and they settled into complacency and compromise and consumerism. God brought them to the land because of that promise. And again, remember that promise that through them, there would come this blessing to the nations of the world, this peace, this shalom to the earth. You see, because they were not just to be a nation, they were to be a priesthood. Priests are mediators between the creator and creation. They, they are to serve as priests who mediate. When you're at odds with someone, when there's a feud, you bring in a third party who mediates between the two. Well, creatures are at odds with the Creator. We need mediation. God, by His grace, called Abram's children to be those mediators who would stand between us and the Holy God, who would, in that place, have this temple where the Holy God would sort of bring back paradise lost. He would manifest Himself, just as He did in the Garden of Eden with our father and our mother, Adam and Eve. So the temple is a place of paradise being restored. It's a porthole of the heavens and the earth. It's a place where there's sacrifice. They offer animals. They offer grain. And there in doing that, you see things that are giving their life. And there we are being taught about the wages of sin being death as we come before a holy God, a God who's a consuming fire, a God that we have all transgressed. But there in the temple, we see his, his wrath satisfied. We have these symbols that show us he's a God who has a plan that will reconcile all of this. And so he brings them back to that land, the temple where it was toppled. He calls them, rebuild, rebuild the temple so that the nations will know that the God of Israel is the God of creation. They come back in the first wave. They start... They build an altar. They start on the foundation. And then internal drama comes. And then uh, exterior forces come. And then they go, you know, I'm, we're just going to stay home. This is just too much. Haggai, the prophet, he talks to them and comes to them and says, you guys are spending all this time at Ikea. You're spending all this time at Crate and Barrel. You're hooking your houses up, and the temple is still in ruins. What are you doing? God didn't save you and bring you here so that you could live your best life now, so that you could live for your stuff, so that you could live a life of comfort and ease and have your 40 acres and a mule, a picket fence, or 
whatever metaphor you want to pick that we have even in our own minds, want to have a backyard and a swing and a pool. Is that, is that so much to ask, Lord? That's not what he saved. He didn't save you to have a swimming pool. Not that there's anything wrong with having swimming pools. He didn't save you to whatever, add on to your house or do it. You know, all the stuff that we can get so focused and so locked in on. He's called them to not live for themselves, but to live as these priests, serving to, to restore the temple, to call the nations to repentance and faith. And they know this. This is, this is the story of their scripture, that the, the people are prone to wander, that Israel, the, the descendants of Abram, who were brought to this place, Israel's kings, you have stories of men who are, who are living for God and they forget and they walk away and generations walk in the darkness. The great uh, biblical scholar D.A. Carson has this excellent line where he says, one generation believes something, the next assumes it, and the third will forget it and deny it. And it happens just like that. Even in our own culture, I look at what's going on in our culture, in, in, in certain uh, sections of the culture, the so-called sexual revolution, which is really just a rebellion. And I think to myself, like, if my great-grandparents heard, you know, what was going on today, they would say, no, no way. But you see, one generation believed something, the next just assumed it, and the third forgot it and, and denied it, and then the fourth is actually rebelling against it. And so God comes to the people with Haggai in that first wave. And Haggai pours his heart out to the people. And it, it, it still doesn't result in great revival. So God sends another one to the generation and says, look, I, I need to remind you of who God is and what God has done and what God has called you to do. And, and, and Zechariah is that second one who comes and he's offering this prophecy to the people. Prophecy involves a foretelling of the law of God, calling people to come to the law. It's foretelling, and there are elements in prophecy that are also often foretelling. They speak of futuristic things. Last week in our study of Zechariah, we stepped into a section that has some foretelling in it, and foretelling, of course, to be sure they're woven together, but it's a section that involves various visions. And so, as you open up your Bibles to Zechariah, I need you to find your way into the fourth chapter. We're studying a section that has eight visions in it, and really these eight visions are kind of one vision. They just all move together. The title of my sermon this Lord's Day is The Valley of Visions, because we are studying in a valley a bunch of visions. In fact, The Valley of Visions is a wordplay on a wonderful book that I would commend to you to pick up called The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of really helpful poems and devotions that the Puritans have written. Uh, it's published by the Banner of Truth. Here's a picture of it. It's just a little black book. You can carry it around. You can use it in prayer. It has all sorts of wonderful prayers in it from uh, the history of, of, of God's people uh, from the 1600s up into the 1900s. Richard Baxter, Thomas Watson... John Bunyan, Isaac Watts, Charles Spurgeon, just excellent prayers that are in there to help guide you and to teach you about prayer. Uh, for those of you who've been in the church long enough, my, my own personal copy was given to me 20 years ago by Chuck Morgan, our beloved brother 
who has gone on to be with the Lord. The title of the book, Valley of Visions, comes from Isaiah 22, verse 1, that reads, The burden of the valley of vision which aileth thee now, thou, that thou art wholly gone up onto the housetops, from the King James. This collection is meant to draw you to God, this little book, The Valley of Vision, and so too, this little book, the book of Zechariah, this section that we are studying is meant to draw you to the Lord. The setting of the writing uh, is this post-exile that I've been talking to you about. The first point on your outline, the setting of the writing. The, the people were in need of three things. They'd come back to the land, they started to build, they gave up on it. Some 15 years had passed. God sent Haggai to confront them to say, what are you doing? You let 15 years pass. Some of us in our lives, we've had long stints of rebellion against the Lord or growing cold to the Lord. And you say, man, if I could get those years back. And the Lord calls them and says, go, go, go. Three, three things that they were in need of in Zechariah. The first is confrontation. You guys need to get back to it. The prophets confront. The second is they need comfort as well. They need a stern confrontation, but they also need comfort. They were living in hard times. They had been through a great deal. Those who went back to the land were a minority. Most, most of the people stayed in Babylon. They said, I'm not doing that. That's hard. I, I'm not doing that. We're, we're going to stay in Babylon. You know, I'll let my kids, my kids are going to finish high school, you know, and I, I'm going you know, to finish this up or that up or whatever. I'm not going back. That, that, that's hard. And so the people who were there, they needed comfort. They're discouraged. They're, they, were, they were hard times. It would have been much easier to do something else with your life than, by golly, to go back to the land that was burned down to the ground, they need comfort. They need confrontation. Thirdly, they need clarity. They need clarity about their mission. Why are we doing this temple thing? They need clarity. Further, they need clarity, clarity with regard to the mission. They need clarity with regard to the Messiah because the covenants are all pointing to the Messiah. And Zechariah, as he's giving these visions, you see him weaving in these messianic themes to give clarity to the people that he will comfort and confront. The genre of, of visions is a little tricky. So for the setting of the writing, we're stepping into a section that has these visions, and these visions have the genre of apocalyptic literature within them. When we hear apocalyptic, we can think, well, you know, like, that sounds, even the words sound, you know, kind of esoteric, apocalyptic, you know. Uh, we're living in apocalyptic times. The word apocalypsis in the Greek, it actually just means unveiling. It's a pulling back of the curtain. The point of apocalyptic isn't to be esoteric. It's actually to bring clarity. And as I said, Zechariah is there for confrontation, comfort, and clarity. The apocalyptic vision is meant to give clarity. Clarity about, again, Messiah and mission. And so apocalyptic literature has symbols in it. It has images in it. And, and, and as you understand those images, you'll see, oh, yeah, God's mission. Oh, yeah, God's Messiah. Draw your eyes at Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8. And you see in this verse, now, and now listen, Zechariah says, Yeshua, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed, they are men who are a symbol. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. Last week I shared with you about the imagery of the branch and how that's messianic and how that's used inside of the Hebrew Bible. Here you see in this verse very clearly, look, these visions, this apocalyptic stuff, is, it's meant for a symbol. 
and the symbols are to teach you something. We have symbols in our culture that we readily understand when we see them. We don't think about it. They're not esoteric to us. You see a symbol and you go, oh, okay, I get the point or whatever. Yeah, yeah, totally. So there's symbols here. It's from the ancient world, so we've got to put on our thinking caps and understand the setting and the context and whatnot. But further, with regard to apocalyptic literature, often there's a, an element of interpretation in them that comes from the heavens. So that you're not just relying on a human teacher teaching you the content of it, but often within the apocalyptic elements of Scripture, angels appear and angels explain the text. Uh, hopefully I'm not weirding out any visitors. I'm not saying there's an angel's going to show up this morning, uh, though I think they are among us. But uh, in the text, you'll see there's an angel who pops into the vision and says, okay, you know, let me tell you what this means. And that's actually very helpful. Because if the angel wasn't in there talking about this is what this means, we would all be left like, uh, what, are, what are these horses? What's going on with this branch thing? So there's an angel often in apocalyptic genre literature that, that shows up, that manifests, that's sent from the Lord so as to explain the content of the vision. The prophet Zechariah is ministering around the end of the 6th century B.C. to these post-exiles who need comfort, confrontation, and clarity. And God brings these visions for that. Apocalyptic stuff isn't meant to be like weird or hard to understand. It's meant to reveal. It's meant, it's meant for God to explain to his people what is going on. Let's move from the setting of the writing to the subject and the witness, the second point you have on your outline. Zechariah opens his book in, in, in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 1. If you have that in front of you, there are six verses where he confronts. He calls Israel to repent and to get on mission. You, you guys knock it off, staying at home. You need to come. You need to gather. You need to get on with the mission. After that, he describes a uh, a vision or visions, these eight visions that he received from the Lord. So from chapter 1, verse 7, all the way through chapter 6, verse 8, you have this section of apocalypsis, of, of visions. I shared with you last week that I originally wanted to do all eight of them on one Sunday, and you know the sermon went long as usual last week, so uh, uh, perhaps it was a good call for me to just say, hey, let's just cut it in half. I probably, though, going back, should have just done two at a time. Maybe one, but alas, it's fun to just force feed it to you. So uh, before we jump back in, though, let's just let's rehearse, because we're going to study the last four of the eight visions. Let's just rehearse the first four in the event that you missed last week and weren't able to get it online, just really quickly. So the first vision is this man who appears in these myrtle trees. There's a, a horseman who's standing in a ravine, and there's these trees, and, and we have explained to us these symbols that, 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 that show us God's plan for the post-exiles. The meaning of this was very simple, that God is faithful, that his compassion is upon Israel, and his anger is upon the nations who, who crushed Israel and cast Israel out of the land. We move from the man in the myrtle trees to the second vision of these four horns and four craftsmen. We study the horns. Uh, we, we, we saw how in the ancient world they symbolized kingdoms and how they opposed Israel and how these craftsmen appear before the horns and they chop or throw down the horns as a symbol of God protecting his people and bringing justice to the violence of their oppressors. We, we, we saw the meaning of this text. Once again, God is faithful. The point of each vision is to drive home that God is faithful. The four horns and the four craftsmen teach us that, that God's people will be restored and protected as well their enemies will be judged. 
The third vision, we had a surveyor and a measuring line. Zechariah sees a figure holding a measuring line, and he's like, dude, what are you doing in this vision? What are you measuring? And he finds out, it's explained to him, that, 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 that this figure is measuring the city of Jerusalem, whose borders are open and expanding and spilling out, and God's uh, presence is wrapping around those borders as it's expanding out, and it's teaching us, again, that God is faithful. His sovereign uh, plan is, is, is coming out to bring them into the land, to restore the temple, and to bless the world through his people. A fourth vision comes. This was the, where we left off. The vision of Joshua, Yeshua, the high priest. Zechariah sees a high priest, Joshua, and he's standing in this vision, and, and it's said that his clothes are dirty. And, and, and then Zechariah witnesses the figure, the Satan. We did some Satanology last week. The Satan, the accuser, shows up and starts attacking the priest, attacking his character, and says he's dirty, and says his clothes are dirty. And then the heavens rebuke the accuser. And Joshua is cleansed. What does all of this mean? Once again, that God is faithful, and that the kingdom of darkness will not win, for God will cleanse and close his people to be a priestly nation and send them his own Messiah, the servant, the branch. Okay, so that's a survey of the first four. Now we're going to step right back into it. Draw your, draw your eyes at the text, chapter 4, verse 1. The angel who was speaking with me returned, roused me as a man who was awakened from sleep. Last week I shared with you that there's a difference between dreams and a difference between visions. Dreams are natural, human phenomenon, psychologists study, neurologists study, sociologists study. Uh, we, we can study them, the natural phenomenon of them. But visions are supernatural. They're, they're something that's different altogether. Now, in, in, in the supernatural phenomenon of a vision, in the natural phenomenon of a dreaming, sometimes they can overlap. And I briefly shared with you some instances inside of Scripture distinctions, like in the book of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar having dreams and, and God being able to use that in particular ways. So as we pick up, we see the angel shows up, we see Zechariah is roused, it says, and he's awakened from sleep, which shows you he's not, this is not a dream. He fell asleep. These visions were hard. They were draining, those first four visions. They drained him. He falls asleep, and the angel comes back, wake up, wake up. I have more visions for you. These aren't dreams. These are visions. Wake up. I don't know about you, but I don't like getting woken up. I really don't. I, I, I get very little sleep as it is. So I, I, you know, I hate when I hear little footsteps in the hallway or whatever, some kid uh, you know, trying to smuggle something out of the fridge or trying to play video games, get away with it or whatever, or even just my body. Most of the time, that's what happens. My body just is like, yeah, you had three hours. That's all you need. And I just, I'm wide awake. I'm like, no, right? Or my wife's alarm goes off. And I'm like, you kidding me? I got to get your alarm. You didn't wake up. You know, all these things that just wake you up. If you're like me, I don't like it. I can't imagine Zechariah here. He's just drained. And then the angel comes back like, wake up. Oh, we're going to do more of this. You have more visions for me. I don't want to do this. You think of, of, of Scrooge or whatever. And, uh, you know, come on, come on. Christmas passed. So we're stepping into a new vision here in chapter 4, verses 1 through 14, and the vision involves a golden lampstand and two olive trees. Let's, let's study it. Draw your eyes into the text. He said to me, 
uh, what do you see? It's like, uh, I, I see and behold a lampstand of gold with it, and there's a bowl on top, and there's seven lamps on it, and there's seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps that are on top of it. And also, there's olive, two olive, there's olive trees by it, and one at the right side of the bowl, and one on the other side on the left. That's, that's what I'm seeing in this vision. Okay, so Zechariah sees a golden lampstand, and it has a bowl of fuel at the top of it, and it has seven channels that flow that are continually uh, supplying the oil as, as fuel for these seven lights on it. Let me show you a picture from the ancient world. If you would look up here, uh, this is an ancient bowl that was found at Dothan. Note, notice how it, it's pinched. It's pinched. And notice how it has seven pinches around it. And there's these, there's these little, little, you see right here, these, these little notches that are, are, are placed there for putting wicks. And this would be filled with, with oil for, for burning, and you'd have little wicks in this. So, so this image that we have here, it would have been a common one. Archaeologists find these all, all around the Middle East. This is a common one. It, it sounds a little foreign to us, but let me just give you this, this common picture here. You put the wicks in on their seven. And it's, it's in the passage, it's on a stand. And archaeologists have, have unearthed many of these where you have it it's situated on a stand, and you've got, you've got the, the bowl there that you put the oil in, and you can place the wicks in. Now, imagine, though, that what I've put in front of you, it's gold. And then imagine two olive trees on each of the side, and olive trees provide olives, and olives provide oil. Okay, so not, you know, olive oil is delicious to eat too, but it also provides fuel for lamps. Now that said, notice the lampstand in the text that we were reading, it's not a normal lampstand because it's being fueled directly from the trees. And no one's like crushing them or going through any kind of processing. Draw your eyes at the text, in fact, and look at verse 12. Notice in verse 12, there's a language in the imagery here of these golden pipes that are coming to it. So, so I've given you a little bit of archaeology there so you can try to visualize it. If you go on Google and you typed in this prophecy, you'd find there's all sorts of artists. Here's just a little sampling of them who are trying to recreate this artistically. Okay, so, so you have some images in your mind, but more important than trying to like picture it, we want to explain it. And thankfully, we have the angel to do hermeneutics for us and offer some interpretation here. Verse 4, I said to the angel who was with me, what are these, my Lord? And, and the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? He's like, uh, no, that's why I asked. <laughs> no, my Lord. I shared with you last week that Lord doesn't always be like a capital L, like Lord God, but it can be a, a, a title of respect, like sir or whatever. Um, and, and, you know, this is an angel that is talking here. This isn't God. He's like, hey, hey you know, what are these? Then uh, verse 6, then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. You want to know what this means? Here's what this means. It means that God is faithful and he will give power to his people by his spirit. That's what the angel says it means in verse 6. Not by, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That lamp that you see is not a natural lamp. It's being fed supernaturally. It's, a, it's, it, 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 it's not a natural thing that's going on there. And that's to show you that you will be carried by something that is supernatural. My spirit. 
Now we know through the progressive revelation of Scripture, through the witness of God's people through the ages, that the Spirit is not a mere force. The Spirit is a person. The Spirit is in personal relation to the Father and the Son. He can be referred to as my Spirit. The Lord Jesus would refer to the Holy Spirit as His Spirit. They're in personal relationship with one another. There is one God who eternally dwells in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Son can speak of His Father as my Father. They, can, they the Son and the Father, can speak of the Spirit as my Spirit, for they are one being in three persons. In the Hebrew Bible, we see the Spirit being described with this kind of personal language, my Spirit. This ain't any old Spirit, this is my Spirit, the Spirit, who eternally dwells with the Father and Son. In the beginning of the Hebrew Bible, in the book of Genesis, you see the Spirit moving in personal language as He hovers over the waters of creation. We see the Spirit in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, who's contending with men. He's doing a personal work. This is a person. Another example in the Hebrew Bible, Isaiah chapter 63, verse 10, the Spirit is said to grieve with the Father. Zechariah here speaks of the Spirit personally with the people, and this time he's not grieving like Isaiah 63.10. This time he's empowering. They're exiles, remember. They're, they're a minority. They're beat down. Most people weren't going to do that. Most people didn't want to do that. Most people decided to settle in suburbia. They're not going to go there and try to rebuild and do all that. They're, they're discouraged. I, I shared with you in the beginning. They needed comfort. I have comfort for you. Check out this crazy lamp thingy that's burning. What does that mean? The angel says, that's God's power, and the Spirit is going to bring that for you. You have God's Spirit working with you. This, this temple that is in ruins, this little altar that you guys built, this, this stuff you started 15 years ago that you haven't been working on, the Spirit is going to bring it to pass. The Spirit will give you the power. And, and, and then the world will know that it, this wasn't done, this temple, this land, this wasn't done by the, by the power of the hands of men. This wasn't done by white-knuckling it. This was done by something that was supernatural. Of course, thinking about the work of the Holy Spirit in Israel, it's hard not to think of the work of the Spirit in Israel on the day of Pentecost when the program of the church began. Where, where this here, Delray Church, our roots go back to the book of Acts in the land of Israel when the Spirit was poured out in, in, in fulfillment of the promise of our Savior Jesus who said, I ascend to the Father that another may come. And you wait on Him and you wait for His power. And He will empower you, the Lord Jesus said, speaking of the Spirit, to go to the ends of the earth with this mission that we are carrying in between the ages right now, brothers and sisters. And you look at that text in Acts chapter 2, and you see the Spirit being poured out on those Jewish followers of Jesus. And you, you see prophecy right there, and you see revival right there. One biblical commentator, Dr. John Phillips, reflects on this in his commentary on Zechariah. He writes, the, the world had a foretaste of Israel's revival on the day of Pentecost when there was a partial fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, Acts 2, Joel 2. After the rapture of the church, there will be another Pentecost that will produce the astonishing revival associated with the ministry of the two witnesses of Revelation 11 and the preaching of the 144,000 of Revelation 7 during the tribulation. The language used in the description of the witnesses in Revelation 11 is reminiscent of the description of Zechariah's vision. 
However, both of the outpourings of the Spirit, the post-exiles and Acts, one giving birth to the church, the other a tribulation revival, the outpouring that is to come, they're, pre they're precursors to the universal spiritual awakening, one described by Zechariah that will inaugurate the millennium. Now, there's not time to get into all the eschatological dimensions. We're, we're surveying these, and, and oh my golly, I, we haven't finished one vision, and we got three left. So, verse 7, what are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts, grace, grace to it. By God's power, the mountains are going to move. The mountains will lower and they'll become a plain. There, there's a stone that's on top of it, the text says, which is a prophetic reference to Zerubbabel building the temple, the final stone of the temple that will be built. Verse 8, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it, and then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The fuel in the lampstand is a picture of God fueling the people. Keep in mind, Zechariah is a priest. Priests, uh, one of their jobs in the temple was to fuel the lamps. They, they, they would pinch the sides of that clay and make lamps and fill them with oil and put the wicks in. That's a part of their job. This is all imagery that he, he knows he's been trained in as a priest. But it's not just fill and fuel. It's fulfill. God would fulfill the promise. The temple would come to completion. You're sitting there. 15 years has passed. You're thinking to yourself, we can't do this. The prophet Haggai dropped the bomb on you. You're feeling guilty. Yeah, we have been messing around, making our houses look sweet and doing other stuff. And you're feeling guilty and you're going, how, how, how is this going to happen? And Zechariah comes and says, here's a word of comfort. God's going to give you the power to do this. His oil, his fuel, his power, his wicks will come within your hearts and will carry you. Now, spoiler alert, about four years after this vision, the new temple would be rededicated. When we get back into Ezra, we will see that take place. That said, keep in mind, for them in that moment, it, it wouldn't have felt like it. And so this word that comes from Zechariah, this vision that comes to Zechariah, how encouraging would that be? When you're, you're looking at the situation, you're going, how, you know, what's going to happen? How, how will we build? How will we grow? How will we accomplish? God's going to do it. Verse 10. For who has despised the day of small things? That's a, that's a powerful question. The day of small things. Uh, I'm reminded of Luke chapter 16, verse 8, where Jesus discusses a, a parallel principle uh, about how God gives us small things first to test us and to train us before giving us more responsibilities. In your, in your own life, right, you, you've, all, you've no doubt, you've learned from doing small things that prepared you for greater things. You, you've, you've gone through various things in your life, whether it's playing piano or getting a black belt or, you know, whatever, you, where you just, you go through the small things. And, and eventually, eventually you're playing jazz and, you know, you're a ninja. But you, you had to start with punches and kicks and keys, right? So, so, so don't be mad at the small things because they're training you and testing you for the big things. Guys want a wife. I want, I want to get married, I want to get married. But you don't walk in holiness. You don't walk in holiness. And, and, and you, you, you go, but, but I want to get, you're not walking in holiness. Guys want to raise, but they don't work hard. You're not working hard with what your job gave you, and you're mad that you're not doing more. Don't despise the day of small things. 
There, there are many who minister for decades without any fruit, and the Lord uses that to test and to train and to prepare. But these, verse 10, these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line and the hand of Zerubbabel for the eyes of the Lord, which range to and fro throughout the earth. You guys, I'm training and testing you. You're, you're there. The foundation is there. It's there. You have work to do. You have work to do. But when Zerubbabel comes and he's holding that plumb line, oh, it'll all be worth it. Last week I shared with you about plumb lines. Here's a picture of a plumb line again just to kind of remind you, Zerubbabel's holding a plumb line. A plumb line is just a string with a weight that's attached to it. You can take the string and kind of use it like, like a measuring tape and measure things out, mark the string, and make sure that this side is as long as this side. And then with the weight on it, you can hold it up and you can see, you can see if it's level. It's a lot like, you know, the little bubble level things that you get at Home Depot. And so, so he's holding it as a, an image of it being finished, and he's just measuring it and going... Ah, oh, yeah, the plumb line's straight. Woo, the temple is done. This is awesome. And look who's watching the seven eyes of the Lord, the text says. We saw last week in chapter 3, verse 9, there was this stone that had seven eyes on it. And I shared with you kind of the messianic dimensions of that. So the Lord is, is watching. The Lord is seeing. As we continue, we'll see there's more meaning to the vision beyond the communal empowerment to finish the temple. We will see the meaning of the olive trees in just a moment. And for those of you who are worrying, are we going to get out of church at a decent hour today? Don't worry, the first vision is kind of the hard one. The other ones just roll right out. Okay, verse 11. Then I said to them, well, hey, okay, so that's what the bowl and the things is. What about the two olive trees, Zechariah says, verse 11. The two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and the one on the left, what's going on with that? And I answered a second time and said to him, verse 12, what, what are the two olive branches that are beside the golden pipes, which empty from the, the golden oil from themselves? And he answered, saying to me, verse 13, you don't know what these are? No, that's why I just asked you twice. Uh, and I said, no, no, my Lord. And verse, verse 14, he said, these are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's what those mean. Okay. Now, in the original Hebrew, the phrase that the Hebrew text uses for the two anointed ones literally means sons of fresh oil. The Israelites commonly used olive oil for anointing people. You see it all over the Hebrew Bible, which served as a symbol of holiness, consecration, setting someone apart for a special purpose, anointing, spirit, setting apart, sanctification. It's all imagery in there. Now, in this most immediate context, the two sons of oil would be Joshua and Zerubbabel. The, the priest and the king of the people. This then builds on the meaning that we've been discussing, the communal empowerment, and also he will give power to his people by the Spirit and provide them with a holy prophet and a priest. Now, because this, this, this vision is, it has immediate meaning, a prophet and a priest, and you go, okay, like that fits Joshua and Zerubbabel, but, but because the vision also has a, a messianic and futuristic overtones in it, we, we think futuristically, and I quoted Dr. Phillips earlier, how he ties together Revelation chapter 11, where there are, the, are these two anointed ones, these two figures who are set apart by God and used to confront the Antichrist who was coming against the people Israel in that era of tribulation. Now, there's not time to explore those parallels, but it's just worth noting that there's some eschatological dimension in imagery here. As well, there is this messianic overtone, because we can't help but to think of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our priest and our king, he is the Lord of the whole earth, as, as, as the wording here in Zechariah we see. And we go, oh my goodness, like, 
we, we, we receive reflection on our Lord as we think of the messianic overtones in this. We, we, we have every confidence in this based on the historical reality of the resurrection that our perfect priest and our perfect king is one. Jesus defeated death. Jesus took our sin on the cross. Jesus offers you today payment for your sin. Jesus offers you today mediation as the perfect priest over all creation to reconcile you to his Father. Jesus offers you the promise of his kingdom come, his will that will be done that we await as he returns. These visions are reminding us that there's something future that will happen. There was something immediate that was happening for the people then. As well, there's immediate application for us as we feel the word of the prophet. And we're reminded that we have a mission in this age and that we are waiting for one to come. Now then, let's move into the next vision. It will, I promise you, be quicker. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I lifted my eyes again, and look, and behold, there was a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? And I answered, I, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and its width is 10 cubits. So he sees a flying scroll. The scroll isn't rolled up, right? Normally they're rolled up, but it's, it's opened out. So he has the measurements of it. 20 cubits is about 30 to 34 feet. Uh, 10 cubits is half that, so like 15 to 17 feet. If you want to visualize it, it's like uh, an, an NBA half court. Just, just, flying, just flying out in the sky so that, that, that people can see it. It's like Aladdin's flying carpet or whatever. It's just flying, right? Now, verse 3, he said to me, he said to me, uh, this is the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land. Surely everyone who steals will be purged away according to the writing on the one side of the scroll, and everyone who swears will be purged away according to the writing on the other side of the scroll. So the scroll's open, and it's big enough that the people below it, who are watching it fly, can, can read it, and they can see what it says on both sides. Verse 4, I will make it go forth, declares the Lord of hosts, and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name, and it will spend the night within that house and consume it with its timber and stones. Curses are associated with uh, covenantal disobedience. The scroll has the law of God, and it's hanging over the heads of those uh, who, who, who have sinned against their neighbor and against God. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he said to love God and to love your neighbor. The vision is then calling out sin and calling the people to repentance. Here's the meeting for your notes. God is faithful. He will uphold his righteous law among his people. The vision is a call to righteousness. It's, it's a reminder that we need the good news. The law hangs over the house of the thief. The, the, long, the law is, is hanging over the, the, the house of the one who swore falsely. It's hanging over them, condemning them. That's the bad news of the law. That's what the law does. It condemns us. And the good news of the mercy of God in Christ is that we have one who will deliver us from the wages of sin and death. According to Scripture, God's curse rests on all who fail to keep the law perfectly. But as Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 reminds us, quoting Deuteronomy 27, 26, Look at this, brothers and sisters, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all these things written in the book of law to perform them. That's the bad news. The scroll is hanging over the thief and the one who swore falsely, and it's hanging over them, and it's in their home, and it's hanging over them. It's, it's literally damning news. You have damnation upon your head. But here comes the good news. Keep reading in Galatians, and we see that in Christ the curse is removed. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
And that's why when we preach on Sunday mornings, that's why when we gather and worship, we tell you about the curse, but we tell you about the Christ. If you don't know you're sick, you're not going to take your medicine. We have to show you, look, you're sick, worse than being sick, you're dead, but here's the one who will heal you of your sickness and give you life if you come to him. Now let me draw your attention to the specific condemnation in the passage. Stealing and swearing. Why are those specific things in this specific moment of the post-exile? Why are those being highlighted? Well, since the prophecies are in the context of the rebuilding of the temple, this is likely a reference to the building campaign itself. The ancients do, did building campaigns the way we do them today. When you're like, hey, we're going to have a building campaign. Who, who's going to pledge to give? And, you know, how much? You take pledges. In the ancient world, pledges were viewed as sacred oaths. They were viewed as swearing. To swear falsely is to renege or default on what you promised to do. What was, what was promised to give was viewed as God's ultimately. So to not make good on an oath to give to the temple campaign was akin to stealing. The language we understand in this post-exilic moment is dealing with the building of the temple and saying to the people, you guys made pledges to build and you haven't, and you haven't done it. You swore falsely you're stealing from the house of the Lord. Malachi, we'll study Malachi when we get into his text, he uses this imagery. He says the people are robbing God because they're not bringing to the storehouse in Jerusalem what was pledged. So the law hangs over them specifically, highlighting these two specific mitzvahot or commandments because that's what the people were dealing with. And that vision then weighs on you because you go, oh yeah, I said I was going to give or I said I was going to help or I said I was going to do that and I didn't. And now this magic carpet is hanging over my house. What must I do to be saved? Throw yourself at the mercy of God. Another vision. Another vision. There's a woman in a basket being carried away. This one's super cool. Check it out. Verse 5. An angel was speaking with me and went out and said to me, Lift up now your eyes and, and see what is going forth. And I was like, what? What is it? Verse 6. This is an epath going forth. An epath is just a, a, a basket. And again, he said, this is, this is their appearance in all the land. Verse 7, and behold, a, a lead cover was lifted up, and there's a woman sitting inside of the basket, the epath. So there's a little woman sitting inside of a basket. Sorry, I had to do it, but it totally reminds me of E.T., right? This <laughs> is a little basket, and got a little home, right? And, and you're like, well, why is there a lady in a basket? Like, what is this? God tells us, the angel's like, I'll tell you what it means. Verse 8, then he said, this is wickedness. Sorry, E.T., this is wickedness. The woman is a symbol of wickedness. In fact, speaking of symbols, the woman may not be an actual woman, but actually, I'll, I'll explain, an idol. You see, in the ancient world, the pagans carved, uh, uh, well, the pagans worshipped female goddesses, and they carved little images of these little female uh, goddesses, and they put them inside of little baskets, and they carried them around as part of worship. In fact, all around Jerusalem, in the first temple, we find these uh, around the foundations of the first temple. These little figurines and epaths, little baskets of little, you know, pagan gods, which tells you about the spiritual climate of the people of Israel around that time. Uh, in fact, they are referred to by scholars as JPFs, Judean Pillar Figurines. I'll put, I'll put uh, just a sampling here in front of you. Some of them would be made by hand. Some of them would be pressed together. Here you have a an example of both, and they'd be placed inside these little epaths, these little baskets. Archaeologists have, in, have in tons of these little clay female figurines with heads 
rendered largely in these two types of the handmaid and the moldmaid. Scholars have tied these to Asherah, the Canaanite goddess who was syncretistically worshipped alongside Yahweh in Jewish cults in the, in the days of, of Israel's first temple. Uh, Yahweh's wife, they, they viewed it as like a wife of God, you know, and so it's this paganism that crept into the hearts of the people of Israel. JPFs, uh, they, they represent the goddesses uh, Ashtarthe, Anath, fertility goddesses. They could be used as good luck charms. So anyway, a little lady inside of a basket, isn't, it's a common image for them. You're like, oh, you're talking about pagan stuff. Okay, now it gets a little more trippy. Verse 8. Then he said, this is wickedness, and then throw her down in the middle of the e-path and, and, and cast the lead weight on its opening. So wickedness is canned, and the point of this is that God is faithful. He will remove evil from the land. He will remove idolatry from their hearts. He will, he will take it from them. It is worth noting that e-paths or baskets were, were, were used for uh, not just carrying these little uh, figurines, but they are also used uh, for measuring things out. Like when you go to the store, you set it down, and you, hey, give me some of that flour, or give me some of those carrots or whatever, and you put it in the basket, and then you use lead weights on the other side to, to see how much it's worth. That's a, part, that's a part of how the marketplace works. So the lead that is referenced, that is placed in on top, is a counterbalance, scales, judgment. This will be judged. Then I lifted my eyes, verse 9, and I looked, and the two, and this is where it gets really trippy. I lifted my eyes and I looked. Two women were coming out with, with, in the wind, and they had wings, the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the e-path between the earth and the heavens. Okay, now that's really trippy, right? Uh, now, now, they're not called angels. Um, there, there are no female angels inside of the scripture, contrary to your Christmas cards and Maybe the, that, that lady you put on top of your tree that is not biblical at all, but th these aren't angels. Again, it's a vision. Now, now, that said, it's worth noting that in the ancient world, pagan religions had winged women. Uh, let me put an image in front of you. Scholars note that in Ugaritic literature, Baal's sister Anat is portrayed with wings. In Mesopotamian art, you have these winged feminine creatures. They, they are, uh, in fact, they appear in the ancient world uh, as demons. The, the goddess Ishtar is occasionally portrayed with wings. Uh, two female winged uh, spirits here at that time would have been clear, oh, this, this is demonic, this is evil. Uh, this image comes from the British Museum, which if you're ever in London, you have to go, you have to see this. And so you can see these images in their world at the time, like ladies with wings, that was demonic and dark. They are described as having stork wings to boot. Um, the medieval Rabbi Rashi uh, writes about how the stork was not kosher; it was unclean. These are the wings. These are the wings of uncleanliness. It's it's dark. Now in our culture, we're like, but the storks deliver the babies. You know, no, 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 no stork wings. Like, no, that's some dark stuff. Let alone coming out of a woman's back and a little pagan baby in a basket. This is this is dark. Okay, um, um, storks delivering babies. That's European folk folklore. There's not time to get into all that, but. For in the ancient days, in fact, in the Greco-Roman Empire, they believed that storks actually stole babies. So this is dark imagery. Okay? Verse 10, Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, Where are they taking the epath? The demon stork ladies. Uh, then he said to me, verse 11, To build a temple for her in the land of Shinar, where it is prepared, she will be there on her own pedestal. Shinar is Babylon. Okay? 
So, and Babylon is a fitting place for this to go. Babylon is the place of ancient rebellion, idolatry, and judgment as well. In the future, uh, Babylon is spoken of in Revelation. Babylon will finally be confronted by God. In the present, Babylon is present. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, Peter talks about uh, Babylon being alive in the days of the church among fallen earthly powers. We live in a moment where we need to be reminded of this because Babylon continues to masquerade in our days in all sorts of ways. And we see this in our culture. The left thinks it's good. The right thinks it's good. People get sucked into trusting these powers, and we forget that we're in the days of Babylon. The vision here is of a day where God removes Babylon and removes it and guts it and gets it out. We need this reminder that we don't trust the pagan figurines in the basket to deliver us. If you call yourself a Christian and you talk more about politics and pop culture than Christ, I submit to you something might be wrong. If you're more afraid about what's going on in the world than at peace because your sins have been paid and at peace because he's coming again, I submit to you that something may be wrong. If you're more familiar with the latest political outrage or pop cultural drama than you are the drama of the Bible and sound doctrine, then something might be wrong. Perhaps the spell of Babylon has, has, has come over you. And you need to hear of the God who will eradicate and remove this from not only our hearts, but from the land. It's good to examine ourselves as we gather. It's good to think about what we're focused on during the week. It's good to be here on Sunday and know that you will be reminded of what matters. God reconciling the earth in Christ. The vision that is left, number eight. Four chariots or spirits that are from the heaven in the earth. This is our last and final one. Now, I lifted my eyes, verse 1. And again, and behold, there were four chariots that were coming forth from, behold, uh, two mountains. And the mountains were bronze mountains. And the first chariot were red horses. The second chariot, black horses. The third chariot were white horses. And the fourth chariot, strong dappled horses. Now, I showed you last week that there's all kinds of, you know, interesting things about the color of horses and we're not going to get dragged into it or whatever, so I'm not going to do that here. But what I want to show you very quickly here is that this eighth, if you were here last week, the eighth vision should remind you of the first vision. There were four horsemen in this eighth vision. There were four horsemen in the first vision. And therein you see this kind of literary device where he's stacking the visions. Vision 1 parallels vision 8. Four horsemen, four horsemen. Vision 2, being saved from Babylon. Vision 7, sin being brought out to Babylon. Vision 3, the measuring of blessing. Vision 6, the measuring of blighting, the law hanging over. Vision 4, the priesthood being restored. Vision 5, the prince, the king being reinstated. It all, that's why I kind of wanted to preach it in one sermon so you could kind of see this. But anyway, it's there for you. Uh, we're running out. We're already out of time. Uh, let's go. Verse 4. Then I spoke and I said to the angel who was speaking with me, What are these, my Lord? What, you know, what's going on? Mountains and horses? And the angel said to me, These are the four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth, with one of which the black horses are going forth to the north country, and the white ones are going forth after them, while the dappled ones are going forth to the south country. Now, many scholars uh, understand, uh, I believe rightly so, that the north is a reference to Babylon and the south is a reference to Egypt. Those are the, his the historic enemies of the people of Israel. Slavery and slaughter. The angel explains these images as pictures of warfare. The Bible sees the last days. The last days is involving a cosmic battle, Armageddon. We see rumblings of this in our day. Terrorisms and tyrants. Add to the terrorists and the tyrants technology, 
and you have a trifecta of disaster. Humans are right now developing nuclear weapons and chemical weapons. Right now there are questions about this COVID thing and whether or not that was made by men and what sorts of intentions that could have had. With technology, tyrants and terrorists are, are, are almost literally to create the dark, mysterious images that we find inside of apocalyptic literature. As fallen creatures, we take the gifts of God in his common grace and technology to make medicine, but others with dark intent use it not for medicine, but for murder and marring and maiming. We live in a culture where doctors literally dismember babies in the name of choice, where science is not uh, only uh, uh, scapling off body parts also in the name of choice, but they're toying now with transplanting uteruses into men. The gifts of gender being marred at the hands of men, the confusion, the darkness, it all comes to head inside of the prophecy of Scripture with men taking the gifts of God and creation and using it for war and darkness and destruction. And then God shows up and a judgment day comes. We will all be judged for what we did with our bodies, our beliefs, our behaviors, and more. The corporate acts of groups and nations will be judged. Zechariah sees God in this vision, judging the nations in fidelity to the covenant that was made with Abram, Jacob's trouble, tribulation. In the book of Revelation, chapter 6, we see four spirits and angels riding a white horse, a red horse, a black horse, an ashen horse in the tribulation of the last days. Revelation sees four angels that are unearthed from the four corners of the earth that are released with the sixth trumpet in the book of Revelation. Also mentioned in the seventh chapter of Revelation, in chapter 9, verse 14. All of this to say, Zechariah is seeing end time stuff. When the strong ones, verse 7, comes out and they are eager to patrol the earth, and he said, go patrol the earth. They patrolled the earth, and he cried out to me and spoke to me, saying, see those who are going to the land of the north, Babylon. They have appeased my wrath in the land of the north. The spirits of heaven are explained as these angelic instruments of divine judgment. Notice the phrase in verse 5, the Lord of the whole earth. That's a messianic phrase. The Messiah will come to Zion. The last days will come. And finally, finally, all this darkness and death will be eradicated. The meaning of this prophecy, this last and final vision is simple. God is faithful. He will fulfill his promises to Israel. And he will judge the nations for their wickedness. Zechariah sees a day when divine wrath is appeased. Creation and creator are no longer in conflict. But this will be brought about through divine conflict, judgment. There's no other way that this is going to happen. Justice has to be served. And there is not a soul who would escape judgment day. Not even death provides us a way out. There is only one way out. It's through the blood of the Lamb who has come to give us reconciliation and rest. Speaking of rest, it's worth noting that here the Hebrew literally means where it says appeased, it literally means caused my spirit to rest. In fact, if any of you have the English Standard Version, you see it's rendered that way. Have set my spirit at rest. I think of the spirit in Genesis and the work of creation on the seventh day where, where we see divine rest. It was finished. So too in the last days it will be finished. Creation will be recreated and brought to rest. Revelation 21 describes on the heels of Revelation 19 when Christ comes as the rider of the white horse. White horse image here, white horse image in Revelation. Christ rides the white horse. The angels gather the nations from the four corners of the earth. He establishes his kingdom on earth. And we read, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21.1, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! 
The tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be my people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be death. There will no longer be mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away, and he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Right, for these words are faithful and true. Zechariah is teaching us that God is faithful to fulfill, that God and his promises are true. Zechariah is writing not to give us esoteric, apocalyptic prophecy, but to call the people to service and to worship. The eight visions are vivid. The angelic horsemen, mysterious myrtle trees, ravines, mountains, stork demon ladies. I mean, it's, it's whoa, whoa. But get back to what it's intended to do. Apocalypsis is to reveal it's intended to be practical. They're calling the people to service and worship. God's called us to service and worship. God saved us for service and worship. God saved you for service and worship. And we come and worship with these cups. And we open these cups. And we participate in the divine drama through this symbol of the eternal son who took on flesh, the branch that will come and restore all things. The son came to save us. The Son came to pay our debt for us. The Son sent the Spirit to make us a new temple in this age. And just as Israel was called to build the temple, we've been called to build the temple. And as we partake of the bread, we remember this temple was made at the cost of the Lamb. Let's celebrate the Lamb. With Zechariah, we're reminded that people are prone to wander. They're prone to chase after comforts. We're prone to forget our mission. It's Zechariah for Pete's sake. You already had Haggai. How, how many times do I have to say this to you? The Lord says to Israel. And so too to us. He just keeps calling us. He's a good father. He keeps confronting us. Keeps confronting our sin. Keeps comforting us. Look at your sin, feel the weight of it, feel the law hanging over your house. But let's celebrate the one whose blood was shed so that you don't have to walk in that anymore and you can come in pure worship and, and be clothed just as Joshua was clothed. Oh, the serpent, he cried out, he's dirty, he's dirty. God rebuked that and cleansed. We're cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Let's pray, let's sing, church. Thank you for being patient and letting me go long. Crazy visions, crazy visions. But as we come now and we sing, let God work in your heart. Say, Lord, I, 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 want, I want to serve you. I want to worship you. I want these visions to jar me and grab a hold of me. Let's seek the Lord in prayer and now in song. Father, we thank you for these gnarly images that we've had in Zechariah. Images that remind us of your power. Images that remind us of your promises. Images that remind us of your providence. You are in control of all things. And Lord, we confess that we don't live like that. Instead of resting in your promises, Lord, we, we, are, we, are, we are prone to anxiety and to worry and to fret and to getting off mission. So Lord, now as we pray, Lord, now as as the taste of the juice and the bread is still fresh in our mouths. Lord, I pray 
that the, these truths would be fresh in our hearts. As we sing, Lord, sanctify your church, we pray. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.